On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group takes a little side trip to explore Whitesnake's self-titled album. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Jobo Claire, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by the full complement of my best friends, Paul Zotter, Tom Corcoran, and Ken Gregory, as we take a little side trip back to high school for White Snake's self-titled album. seeing how far we can push our Queensryche audience. That's right. <laughs> so, so this this is a uh, this is an episode that we've we've sort of I don't know threatened amongst ourselves for quite some time, and you know it. We're in a position right now where we are at least temporarily at, at this time in in the world we are finishing up releasing our. Queensryche segment, which we actually recorded about a year ago from when they're released because of various things. And um, so obviously, you know, you know, you can have the argument about, you know, how prog is Queensryche and prog metal and this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, the, the metal portion of this, I think, kind of got us all excited and thinking back to the glory days of high school and Tom, I think you actually have an in with the current bassist for White Snake, if I remember correctly. And and so you know, there's just something about this record that that naturally sort of lends itself to want to be talked about, which makes perfect sense. And you know, we we've done a lot of of high school reliving throughout the Queensrÿche thing, so it sort of made sense. But stop the presses. Because as we were talking about this several weeks ago, our good friend Ken here comes up with the with the confession that he's never listened to this entire album. I have now. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> so so what originally was supposed to be just sort of a, a fun little romp into into White Snake World and all of the soap opera drama that goes along with this record. Um, now we have, you know, Ken's initial reactions, which to me is sort of like just, you know, <laughs> next level type stuff. Um, so I'm I'm really interested to to kind of go through this and and see where we wind up. But I mean, there there's so much to talk about this record. I remember when it it came out. I remember the videos were all over MTV and we're all excited about, you know, the, the, the band members. And then we come to find out that none of the people in MTV actually played on the record. And, you know, it just, it, the whole thing was just off the hook. Tawny Katane writhing around on multiple Jaguars. Um, just a lot of stuff going on there. 
Oh, boy. Should we throw in some context? Please. Let's throw in some context. I mean, I didn't have much time to study, but uh, uh, I went back into the live albums and I went back into, you know, um, he was in purple. Listen to some of that. Uh, uh, I call these these cats strutters. If if you know the strutter song from Kiss, oh yeah, they, they, they come off like metal dudes and they dress like metal dudes, but inside their inner child just wants to be Elvis. They're just like these bouncy little sock hop kind of kids. Um, That's so, so, funny so, so, you so, say that, Ken. So I've been I've been sort of side prepping to do my Grease episode, which has me thinking. <laughs> oh my god! Which. Which has me thinking about, you know, 50s and 60s rock and roll and everything else. And literally, as I was going through this today, um, I was listening to it on, on Apple Music. So I had, like, the lyrics going. And I was like, this guy, you know, it, it, exactly what you were saying. It sounds like 80s heavy metal. But the, the, the subject matter and the lyrics are all like 1950s, you know, greaser rock. It was hilarious. <laughs> well, well, you so, can have misogyny in any era, Joe. Listen, <laughs> I just want to go on record as saying if there is going to be a Grease episode, I would like in. Okay. <laughs> I was going to record it solo tomorrow, but hey, Paul, you're in, man. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'd like to say, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'll do the Grease episode, but if you ever do a Saturday Night Fever episode, I okay. will definitely do that. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, Ken, I didn't mean to derail you. So, so I, I think R&B had a huge impact on folks of this era. I, I think there's three years separating the birth of Robert Plant and David Coverdale. They're, they're very similar. You know, uh, Plant, you know, the minute he got to go solo, it was the Honey Drippers. So that, that yeah. was pretty, pretty revealing right there. And, and I appreciate it now as an adult, but, but, but as a teenager, I was having none of that stuff. In fact, I, I, I dismissed, um, most of the Kiss catalog, because if I want to hear the Time Warp, I love the Time Warp. I'll go listen to that. But, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> it's all the same, uh, you know, 1970s rehash of the 50s. Beautiful stuff now. And I think I, I, I think I appreciate this because of I, I just being a grown-up <laughs> but i i totally i totally dis dis dismissed it back then okay coverdale david coverdale he did three albums successfully with deep purple and then he went out on his own and most of his productions were done with martin birch uh through the british period but then once he got too big for his britches, it was uh, David Geffen who really launched him into the stratosphere. And I think there's a producer in there that I'm going to need to credit too, who was incredibly influential in his career. And, you know, he was pilfering from Deep Purple. Uh, he, he, he managed to get... Uh, John Lord and his band at various points. He managed to get Ian Pace in his band at various points. But as we well know, he, he was uh, 
uh, turning good friends into enemies left and right and just uh, firing people writ large to, to get to the next stage in his career. I, I, I'm sure he can explain it very well and very gracefully in a British accent in the interviews. But, you know, it's a little bit like the uh, Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne story where uh, Coverdale jumps from, uh, you know, one iteration of the band to the next generation of the band and probably doesn't pay much. Um, you know, he, he actually toured before he went really big. Whitesnake toured with Dio. And, and I imagine that that was probably the catalyst for becoming more metal and less boogaloo, if I had to guess. Uh, I won't do the whole catalog, but Slide It In was the precursor to this self-titled White Snake album, 1983 to 1984. And there are two songs on Slide It In that were re-recorded for the self-titled White Snake 1987 album. John Kalodner, there we go. He really, uh, you know, w w with help from David Geffen, really launched Coverdale into the stratosphere. He was interested in a guitarist uh, to take him where he needed to be. The name Michael Schenker came up. Adrian Vandenberg came up. Uh, John Sykes was from Thin Lizzy, and it was the Sykes-Coverdale relationship that really made this happen with uh, bassist Neil Murray rounding out the trio here on the flavor we like a trio of songwriters that's exactly what they had for this album i'll leave it there and let you guys pick it up awesome yeah yeah so uh, one thing that i would add is like you said you know pilfering and and re-recording i think one of the most amazing parts of discovery about you know white snake was you know there were all these records of white snake before slide it in and the white snake album and you know Crying in the Rain, Here I Go Again, and a couple others end up being re-recorded for either the White Snake album or album, the, the one that followed it, Slip of the Tongue. I think you're right, Ken. I think John Kalodner came in and was like, let's just take all the best shit that you've got. You know, it's all the same bluesy shit anyway. Let's, uh, let's, uh, let's put the best stuff on, on this record and, and, and blow it up. But there, you, know, you can hear the sonic difference from Slide It In. I mean, it's a huge departure when it goes to the white snake album, but I would throw out a, a shout out to Bernie Marsden because he was a big part of those, a lot of those um, songs Huge. Uh, that ended up being real big. And, um, you know, definitely, you know, as you said, was, was one of the, one of the early victims uh, in the, you know, from the transition from slide it into, to white snake album. He was sort of the first one to, you know, face the guillotine, if you will, with white snake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to um, quick throw something out there. Um, Joe, you brought up Greece and Ken, you brought up, you know, the whole 50s thing. It's interesting. One of my notes is going back to our experience kind of living through this in the 80s. Uh, this album, White Snake 87, in some ways really, I think, really spoke to teenage boys um the mm. way that i mean there is something to be said for okay the whole hair metal thing sort of spoke to that uh group of people but i think this album in particular for some reason i don't know if it's just the 
the David Coverdale persona character or the Tanya Tanya Katane thing or whatever, or just like a combination of some of the cast of characters that we've had, you know, from, from the past, you know, Rudy Sarzo or whatnot. But there was just something about this album that for me really defined like what it was like to be like a teenager in this time. Um, I, I guess just, it's kind of a cliche, but like I, you know, lived the cliche. I was just, you know, I was in my 83 Trans Am with the T top down, like blaring, <laughs> here I go again, just living life. I mean, I thought everything was just amazing when I was listening to that album I and mean, I was just on cloud nine. And I mean, I just, I mean, whenever we would talk about this album, we would just glow. I mean, and I, I just, we were just, you know, I was just like the, just felt like, you know, King of the Castle when I would have this, you know, tape in the, in the car. And, you know, this really spoke to, to teenage boys in a, in a certain way. I mean, and not to say that, you know, teenage wouldn't speak to teenage girls in other ways, but I, I speaking from my point of view, uh, it's interesting that you bring up Greece because this, this is sort of like the Greece for teenage boys. Yeah, <laughs> if that makes absolutely. any sense. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Before, I mean, it, yeah, go ahead. It's, in, it's incredible in that regard. Very little from the era com comes close to it. Uh, and, and I wanted to comment, um, Paul, you know, the production between Slide It In 1984 and White Snake 1987. It's kind of like the one year transmission uh, transition from uh, Blizzard of Oz to Diary of a Madman, mm. where it's like, holy cow, where did this reverb come from? <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to say that was the one thing I the point I was going to make before I got into the particulars of this record. Is this not the wettest production we've ever considered on the palaver? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yes. It is ridiculous, and it seems like it's everywhere. I, I I took a little just hop forward to slip of the tongue a little bit today just to sort of, you know, range find myself a little bit. And even that is nowhere near as drippy um, as the production is on this. And of course, you know, you can't talk about this album without thinking about Blue Murder, which is very similar in a lot of regards um, production wise. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was just listening to an interview today with david coverdale and you know he's doing these albums now where he's re-recording you know new stuff and the classics and 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 whatnot and even he was like you know every time i hear is this love there's so much reverb on it it sounds like is this lunch <laughs> and he's like i want to i actually want to hear the lyrics without all the reverb because I can't even tell what I'm singing when I, when I listen back. So I think <laughs> but, he's being uh, yeah, a bit yeah. disingenuous, but that's just me. <laughs> all right. So particulars, the, we are talking about the 1987 self-titled white snake album, which was released in April of 1987. It was released on the labels EMI and Geffen and produced by Mike Stone and Keith Olson. In terms of personnel on the record, not on the video, we have David Coverdale with lead vocals, John Sykes on guitars and backing vocals, Neil Murray on bass, and Ainsley Dunbar um, on drums and percussion. Ainsley Dunbar 
has quite the resume, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. We're talking about Frank Zappa, David Bowie, um, Mick Ronson, Journey, Sammy Hagar, Jefferson Starship. Uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous um, what this guy has done. And um, Don Airy and Bill Cuomo are are credited with keyboards. Adrian Vandenberg, a guitar solo on Here I Go Again. According to the wikis, that's because John Sykes apparently hated playing anything to blues. Dan Huff is credited on guitar on Here I Go Again. The uh, radio mix, Mark Andes, bass on Here I Go Again, radio mix. Denny Carmasi, drums on Here I Go Again, radio mix. Vivian Campbell showed up on the guitar solo on Give Me All Your Love, the 88 mix. So that was after he had joined the video band. And uh, Tommy Funderbunk is backing vocals on Here I Go Again, Is This Love, Still the Night, Give Your Love, and Don't Turn Away. The original track listing, and it's interesting, it turns out I don't own this on any physical medium except... <laughs> How is that possible? Except the original LP that I bought back in 1987. Oh. Um, so I've been I've been listening to streaming services recently, but the original North American version, and there are about eight different versions of this record, include Crying in the Rain, Bad Boys, Still the Night, Here I Go Again, Give Me All Your Love, Is This Love, Children of the Night, Straight for the Heart, and Don't Turn Away. There are a couple of bonus tracks that show up on the streaming version, which are actually pretty good. I think they're on the, the European version. Whitesnake is the seventh studio album by British rock band Whitesnake, released on 23 March 1987 by Geffen Records in the United States and by EMI Records in the UK one week later. It was co-written and recorded for over a year in what would be the first and final collaboration between vocalist David Coverdale and guitarist John Sykes, as well as the final album to feature longtime bassist Neil Murray. The album, besides its commercial success, is remarkable for the band's change to a more modern glam metal look and sound, and the first recording to use the band's new logo, which would characterize them in the future. Initially, the album was released worldwide with different titles, track lists, and by different record labels. In Europe and Australia, it was titled 1987 and included two extra songs absent from the North American version, Looking for Love and You're Gonna Break My Heart Again, while in Japan, the album was released as Serpent's Albus with the North American track list. The 20th and 30th anniversary remastered reissues have a common track list including the additional tracks. The album was a critical and commercial success around the world, eventually selling over 8 million copies in the U.S. alone, and thus going eight times platinum by the RIAA by February 1995. It peaked at number two on the U.S. Billboard 200 for 10 non-consecutive weeks, barred from the top spot by three different albums, including Michael Jackson's Bad, and was more weeks in the top five than any other album in 1987. White Snake was the band's highest charting album in the U.S. and peaked at number eight in the U.K. albums chart. Four songs were released as official singles. Still of the Night, Here I Go Again, Is This Love, Give Me All Your Love, and one as a promotional single, Crying in the Rain. Among them, Here I Go Again and Is This Love are the band's most successful charting hits, topping the Billboard Hot 100 at number one and two, respectively. Its success in the U.S. boosted its predecessor slide it in from gold to double platinum status and would see the band receive a nomination at the 1988 Brit Awards 
for Best British Group and the American Music Awards of 1988 for Favorite Pop Rock Album. All right, so if we talk about then when when we first were exposed to this, it was obviously, again, I think it was through the, the videos, um, we saw a band that included Adrian Vandenberg, Vivian Campbell, Rudy Sarzo, and Tommy Aldridge. Um, again, none of which actually played on the record itself. Um, but by the time the videos had come out, Coverdale had fired you know, everyone, and away we go. And most of that band, I believe, ended up recording the next album. Um, yes. Um, except that Steve Vai stepped in and played most of the guitars in the second on slum, Slip of the Tongue. Slip of the Tongue. I actually saw Whitesnake on the Slip of the Tongue tour with Steve Vai. Yeah, I saw them in Tampa with Dan, if you can believe that. I remember yeah. that. I remember that. I also remember Tom and I driving up to go skiing in the Poconos, and we picked up Slip of the Tongue right before we left and listened to it all the way up there. Yeah. Yeah, Slip of the Tongue. Was, I, I, I remember that. You know, it's – it's oh, yeah. the, and that that's a whole other side story. There is a funny quote by Vandenberg um, on the Wikipedia uh, page for Slip of the Tongue where he he – has the opinion that Steve Vai's playing style was maybe a bit too flamboyant, but that's neither here nor there. Well, compared to Adrian Vandenberg, that's probably a fair statement. Is a fair statement. Um, Vivian Campbell, of course, who went on to join Def Leppard for a really, really long time. Great stuff. And John Sykes went off and, um, you know, formed Blue Murder with, um, who was it? Tony Franklin? Tony Franklin. Yeah. And, and I think it was Carmine. Yes, yeah, it was Carmine, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I mean, the 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 fantastic thing is, I'm scrolling through the past list of White Snake former members, and I'm just it's just like a who's who of oh, dude, ev- it's incredible. Everybody, like thirty of them, inco- <laughs> including you know Rudy Sarzer, Rudy Camel, Steve Vai, but I swear to God, Tony Franklin. Yeah, he did bass and backing vocals at some point yeah. in, in 97. Must have been live. So even, yeah, even Tony, you know, signed up for the for, for the run. It, it really is funny how, how, like, this knowledge is just common in all of our brains. Like, if somehow this could be harnessed for something, you know, <laughs> worthwhile, you know? <laughs> so, uh, I... Yeah, go ahead, Paul. Well, I was... I just wanted to share my entry story to white snake oh yeah i don't know i don't know if this ah. is the appropriate time or not I, there th- it, there's always an appropriate time go for it all right so so this is in this is 1987 right where they released still of the night in march and i'll just say tip of the hat i think they followed the i i'm assuming what was the protocol which is you release an album that's about to take over you know popular music Still of the Night is not your average radio song. Agreed. It's not even your average it's not even your average like MTV song, right? And you know, to, to basically break Whitesnake on MTV to an audience that really didn't know who they were uh, in America, I think Still of the Night is a pretty ballsy move. Right to make that your your first 
Tawny Katane aside, right? Um, it's a pretty ballsy move to to deliver um, a song like that and a video that, as as along with many of the other videos of the age, made absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> no storyline, just completely gratuitous in every aspect of that of that video. And and somehow, the first time I saw that video, I was at my grandmother's house, and I I, I don't I mean I. I I remember it like it, it's crystal clear, but I can't even believe that this was the situation. I was sitting in like the rocking chair in the kitchen, and somehow the TV in the kitchen, small little TV, had MTV. And we were sitting around, and I had MTV on because I wanted to watch it. I don't even know what I was doing at my at my grandmother's. And so I'm sitting there, some families around. My cousin Mike is there. Um, Mike is couple couple of few years older than me he was always kind of like the music guy uh when we would vacation at the shore so i was really always you know he was always tipping me off on different music he was the one that actually at my grandmother's house when i was staying there a week he said hey while you're here you should listen to this cassette it's really good you'll like it and it was bob mould's workbook oh and god <laughs> so i i definitely like looked up to him so we're sitting there watching it and um you know, taking it all in, and he's like, "Man, these guys." He's like, "These guys are just like, like modern day, but completely ripping off Led Zeppelin." He was like, "This is just, it's almost offensive." And he's going on and on, and I'm, I'm watching, and I'm thinking to myself, "Yeah, but this is really fucking cool." <laughs> <laughs> so. And, and then, like, I, I don't even know what happened. You know, it was like whatever I was doing in Pittsburgh. I came home and started watching this video, and then it all started to sprinkle in. Like, like who are these, you know, guitar player silhouette dudes that are, like, you know, playing these wicked licks and everything? And then, you know, somehow I started piecing it together that it was um, uh, Vivian Campbell who – Ken and I had just been, you know, stymied. We went to see Dio thinking we were going to see Vivian Campbell and it was Craig Goldie. And I was like, oh my God, Vivian Campbell's in this band. I can't believe this is amazing. Not knowing any of the backstory about, you know, who <laughs> played on it and everything. But like, I just suddenly became hooked on, on this song and the strings and the, and the parts of the song and the ending and just... And I, it just like catapulted me into, you know, listening to this. And and I'm assuming I bought the cassette or somebody had the cassette and I burned it. But I ended up burning. Joe, I think you had you had, I think you had almost the whole White Snake collection. Well, I, I certainly, yeah, I certainly, I certainly bought Slided In and Saints and Sinners, which I still have. Wow. So at, at some point, I just remember having, you know, one of those, you know, TDK SA90s or whatever they were. And on one side I had slided in, and one side I had the White Snake album. And for a very significant part of my of my uh, you know eighty seven, eighty eight, and eighty nine, that cassette just you know rotated through. And um, goodness gracious, I just you know, I mean, uh, just goes on and on. Like you know, I've tried to learn all those riffs on my my first Ibanez which was like the least looking heavy metal guitar. And then when I bought my white Ibanez, you know, hot rod, I was like, ah, 
just playing like playing bad boys you know with the distortion amp turned all the way up like i was just like oh yes <laughs> i mean it was um it was it was it was like a rite of passage almost listening well, to white well, snake paul, in high school oh paul to this day I cannot listen to Bad Boys without picturing you playing it in Jay's basement because <laughs> you had the moves down. You just when you would get into it and you just had to sway and you just had that this huge grin on your face when you would play it. You were just so happy when you were playing it, and it's such a great lick. Oh my god! And uh, so whenever I, I hear it, uh, whenever I, I I take out the album, I just picture you playing it in uh, Jay's basement. But uh, yeah, I mean, some of those licks are, are, are really iconic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and John Sykes literally gave a whole generation of guitar players permission to just go over the top with gratuitous, like, hand slides. You know, like, on, on every song. Every song. <laughs> that video is fascinating. So I guess it was two weeks ago when we had first floated, you know, this idea, or when it looked like this idea uh, you know, this episode may actually come to be. I, uh, I dialed onto YouTube and, and watched um, Still of the Night and and Here I Go Again, because those are the ones you have to watch. And I was struck by what would appear and what is contrary to the usual arrangement of the musicians in that video, in that you have the drummer and the bass player up front the guitarist behind them and Coverdale way in the back, which is just like weirdly cool. I loved it. It definitely worked. I don't think it works as well for the Siberian when they try when they try to do it. No, it does um, not. I agree. But, but it, I think I think the secret to Whitesnake is seem they they seem to have levels. Yeah, you know, like it seemed like David Coverdale was way in the back, but he was like two stories above everybody else. Um, yeah pretty, pretty and, and he crazy. had that that big sort of illuminated circle behind him it looked like he was yes. singing in front of the full moon yes yeah and of course that's part of uh david coverdale's thing uh, from from day one he's always i mean can you had mentioned you know the payment thing I, I i don't know about that but i do know that he really lifts up his players um, he really, he likes to show them off. Um, when we were, um, interviewing, we were doing the hired gun interviews. We did uh, a drummer named Brian Tishy, who was a big heavy metal drummer, right. uh, who, who played with uh, David Coverdale in the, um, early two thousands and, um, around 2010. Um, and Brian, one of the things Brian said was that you know it was so great to be in a situation where the the higher guns were lifted up on on pedestals like he did all these press releases to feature the players and he wanted to show them off he wanted to you know, show okay this is white snake these are the guys and he sort of didn't mind being in the background to like get these guys give these guys their due he wanted to it, it, I think David Coverdale did what you really should do, and you know, even in any business, you know, lift up people around you, and ultimately, by doing that, it lifts you up. But um, you know, a lot of people in the time when you have a band like that, where it's just one person, uh, whether it's your name or a name like White Snake or whatever, 
a lot of times hired guns just sort of are interchangeable and they're in the background. But uh, if you look at the history of White Snake, and certainly this album that we're talking about now, the White Snake '87 album. I mean, this was a huge lineup, and you know he he loved featuring um, these people, and he did want to sort of break into the American audience. So it wasn't just like he was doing it because he, you know, it, it it wasn't all it wasn't straight altruism. But <laughs> right. he, he was trying right. to you know break into the American um, culture, but he just kept doing it throughout. I mean, it is sort of like one of the things that he did. And can I just so, say the coolest effing thing about Brian Titchy is uh-huh. that from 2015 to 2017, he was a studio member of Operation Mindcrime with Jeff Tate. Nice. Yeah. Well, actually, Ken, <laughs> there is this, I, I'm, I'm surprised I didn't tell you guys this. I nearly died when I saw this, when we were interviewing him for hired gun, like he actually didn't make the movie. Um, he didn't make the cut, but you know, we interviewed him and we, we interviewed him and he's like, Hey, um, I want to show you guys something. I do this weird thing with like boxing and it helps me with my drums. So I want you to come downstairs, bring your studio equipment, bring your film and sound. I want to go downstairs and we go down to his basement and he did this thing with a punching bag that sort of helped him with the drums, but his drums had the Operation Mind Crime oh, logo yeah. on. And I was like, oh, Operation oh Mind Crime, what? And I was like, I, I didn't know what was going on. I was like, oh, oh. my God. <laughs> so oh. that was the first time I saw that. And I was like, oh, my God. Because like he had graduated Berkeley like a year before I did. And everyone was like talking about him at Berkeley. Like, he, you know, it was like Brian Tishy, Brian Tishy. Like, who's this guy? Everyone's talking about him. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm seeing all the Queens right, you know, the the logos on the on the on the bass drums. I was like, oh, nice, that's yeah. awesome. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, Ken, I think it's fair to say that you know, Tom, Paul, and I have been gushing over this album for lo these many years. But having just recently experienced the whole thing, <laughs> what are your thoughts, Ken? Well, I, I I never turned away from the Still of the Night video. Um, uh, sure, sure. It, you know, it, it, the middle is a blatant ripoff of uh, Led Zeppelin. Is it um, which which Zeppelin? Whole lot of love, probably, and the, ch- 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 the hi hat there and everything I, like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think across the whole song, you could probably play spot the Led Zeppelin song. Uh, you know, yeah, in numerous whole... places. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But oh my god! I mean, um, just in the past couple of days, I sat at the piano to figure out some of the chords, and I mean, I really like the composition on, you know, this particular album. It it, it seems like he just found that perfect blend of what he was looking for to hit the American market. It's really well crafted. I. I and I, I, I do have to say that the last two tracks of the American release are just bogus. I don't even know what they're called anymore because I just started. Oh. <laughs> oh. But but other than so wait, I mean, we're we're we we just we just crapped all over straight from the heart and don't turn away. Is that what I'm hearing? Can, they can they, they really don't to... need to be on there. Yeah, they, they really. Oh, don't need to hold, be on there. I, can I just I just have to say that. In in you know in my young, developing musical brain, 
and my you know because i mean i mean think about i mean god we, we we do desert island i mean think about the the desert island records we could include from like 86 87 and 88 across the, the whole board right like there's so much crazy music going on in our lives right now we had nothing but time to listen to all of it as my as my young brain is musically processing all of the all of the stuff going on right you know straight straight to the heart is a fantastic like it's just a fantastic vocal chorus but don't turn away in my brain it gets to the end of don't turn away and it has this elongated ending that is basically a reprise of the still of the night and when i heard that in my gremlin driving home from sears my head almost exploded all over upper state road <laughs> I, mean, I mean i was like oh my god i'm like how did they that was amazing they tied the whole record together it was like unbelievable and that was like that was the you know part of the the crack of the door that opened my mind to to the world of progressive rock so uh -huh, uh -huh. yeah so, now. don't turn don't turn away his clutch <laughs> uh, all right sorry sorry I, I i don't mean to offend i feel like i'm coming into strange territory here <laughs> I, think... I, mean, I mean that that was my tom yeah tom bail, bail me out here <laughs> well i i will say don't turn away definitely works a lot better when it's the last song on the album because of that Paul mm -hmm. and exactly for what you brought up um, the ending of don't turn away out ties in to still the night um, I, I recently listened to it this album but it was the Euro European version or whatever and it had one of those other songs on it and had a couple songs after it and it did sort of get washed up in it and it just it didn't really have that that energy because it didn't bookend yeah. the the album. Yeah. Um, but I, I will I will I'm gonna kind of half agree with you here, Ken. Like I'm not a big fan of uh, um, Straight for the Heart, so I'll I'll give you that. But I mean, don't but don't turn away is 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 awesome. I have to say. <laughs> I'll give you oh, fifty okay. fifty on that. So one of the things uh, we knew, we talked about for this record, given the, the time and the fact that there wasn't an internet and, and information was tough to come by, I think we did, I recall we did a pretty good job of sussing out fairly quickly the differences between the recorded version the in terms of the band and, the, and what we were seeing on MTV. And I don't think any of us saw Whitesnake in, in 87. But I was not aware, and I don't know if anyone else was, and I don't know if you guys have read the wikis on some of the drama that went around with recording this record even. Um, oh, just real quick. Tom, did you get to see Whitesnake? I, I think they opened up for Ozzy. Uh, did they? I, I, I can't exactly remember. I, I feel like Joe. I can't remember. <laughs> like, um, I, I want to say yes, but I can't remember what. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate that. <laughs> well we we saw them all in in i think the spring springish winter or spring of of 88 right when they came around i feel yeah. like we were all at that show if i saw them they opened up for another band um and it, i want to say oh you know what it was 
it was they opened up for Motley Crue and Girls, Girls, Girls. I did. Yes, see, I okay. did see them. I, I actually um, um, found my Girls, Girls, Girls uh, concert book in the attic the other day. Um, and <laughs> of course, you did. I did see them. Yeah, that's the concert tour program from Girls, Girls, Girls. That's spectacular. <laughs> Tom, would you have seen them in Hershey or Allentown? I, I thought I saw them in the Spectrum. I, I it had to have been the Spectrum. I'm just looking on set list right now to see if we can see them. Through July of '88, they were not. Would you have seen them in '87 or '88? It may have been '88. It, it, so I would I would think it would have to be '87, right? Because they released the album in '87, and they were headlining by 88. So I would have think, thought that they opened up for Girls, Girls, Girls in 86, 87 for Slide It In. Is, the is that timing right? Unfortunately, I can't remember a damn thing about the concert. I think that's why I was saying I, I sound like you, John. I can't remember the concert. <laughs> so I, I, I wish I could tell you something about it, but I, I, I just I feel like I've seen them and I, I did see them with Motley Crue, but I just, I just can't remember the the show. Well, actually, okay, so maybe um, I could be completely off here. So Girls, Girls, Girls came out on May 15th of 87. So it actually, it was contemporary to the White Snake album. So maybe maybe they opened for, maybe they opened for Motley Crue before they became their own heavy metal sensation. Because I'm thinking we all saw them in our in the spring of 88 and great white open for them mm. really yes are you sh wow i'm positive yeah because i had a very embarrassing situation that happened afterwards that where i was so juiced from the show i was reviewing the concert in much of mixed company the next day at some, I don't know, Harlequin Pippin rehearsal and ended up embarrassing myself quite a bit in front of some um, young high school ladies uh -oh. um, talking about some of the explicit, uh, the explicit nature of some of the, the banter that went on. Um, <laughs> Misogynistic or just foul? Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. Both. It doesn't matter. <laughs> both. It was very... I, I I do remember I this it's crazy that this is the shit you remember but I do remember because it was a uh, young lady that I had several crushes on across my whole entire uh, scholastic career um, but I do I actually remember going back uh, later and apologizing because uh, I was just but that's that's right. how magnificent it was I, I was just so enthralled by the the fanfare of it all so whether we whoever was there. And and I'll have to check my ticket stub because I have no recollection. Although seeing Great White seemed to ring a bell, I don't know. Anyway, White Snake did play at the Philadelphia Spectrum on February fifth, nineteen eighty eight, according to Setlist FM. That makes sense. Was it a Friday night? Uh, I have no idea. I think it was. Yeah, the that makes set, perfect sense. The set list included Bad Boys slash Children of the Night. In, and then Bad Boys again, Slide It In, Slow and Easy, Here I Go Again, oh. 
Guilty of Love, Is This Love, Love Ain't No Stranger, uh, Guitar Solo, Crying in the Rain, Still the Night, Give Me All Your Love, with the encore of Tush. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure why they would do a ZZ Top cover as ZZ Top cover as their as their uh, encore, but that's according to Setlist FM. So, what was the date of that? Uh, February 6th? February fifth, nineteen eighty eight. I can tell you, 100% I was there, and 100% I can't remember a damn thing about the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. It was White Snake and Great White. There you go. Was that I just? Yeah, 1988 Philadelphia. Wow. Wow. And Paul, you just bandied about the word tush, didn't you? (laughs) No, you know what it was. (laughs) The the banter from the Great White lead singer, whoever that dude was. He went on and on about like you know waking up with um, you know whatever. But uh, let me see if uh, yeah, waking up with uh, ugly women. Um, oh no! And then they did, um, yeah. I think they had a song called "Down on Your Knees" too. Um, that went over real well. <laughs> which you know, great, great white, great white. I think definitely like uh, you know, got a, got cleaned up their act a little bit when they when they got a little bit um, more notoriety. But they were, uh, yeah, they they great white. That when I. I don't know if you guys have ever gone and and treated yourself to um, what's that uh, parody band, the '80s parody band. They dress up in the satchels, the name of the guitar player. Uh, what is it? Uh, I can't Steel think Panther? of the name. Steel Panther. Thank you. If you've ever treated yourself to a, to a Steel Panther show, it is it is just it is Joe. It is IRLs across the board. So outrageous. That it's it you know and it's meant to be comedic, but when I went to see that show, it literally made me think of the Great White show of Great White opening it up for White Snake. Um, it is just it it was uh, it was nuts. But well, right, now that I'm, we've worked that all out, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things as I was listening through this, and and I do have to say, just sort of holistically, I, I'm sure I had not listened to this record in years, if not tens of years honestly, um, before a couple of weeks ago when we sort of started to figure out that this might actually happen, I have freaking enjoyed listening to this record. It has been, it's not deep, but it's a hell of a lot of fun. Um, but the, the, the lyric content is extremely, I don't know if I want to go as far as juvenile, but it's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think you can say juvenile. It's pretty basic. It's basic yeah, it's juvenile. It, it's exceptionally yeah. basic. And and again, see, that's... this was this was from a, a golden age, Joe, when I could actually remember song lyrics after just a couple of listens, right? <laughs> this this is before you you lost yourself in the Prague Ocean, Paul. <laughs> Oh. And and David Coverdale was a few years older than yeah most of the people that were you know playing at that time. I mean, he was another, yeah he was a second generation. I mean, I, listen, it still holds up. Uh, you know, throw this album on dur- during a workout or something. Like, 
it it is almost impossible still as a man in his early 50s to not hear the opening riffs of bad boys and not go oh 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 <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And, and I, you know, I think we've got to give John Sykes, you know, some props here because, you know, Adrian and, and Vivian sort of took all the, the stage bows for this. But, I mean, John kicks ass on this record top to bottom as as oh, yeah. wet as his sound is and everything else that you want to say about it. It's monstrous and wonderfully so. Okay. So you guys took me, at least Paul, you did. You took me to... Um... Blue Murder, King's X, Billy Squire, in yes. uh, <laughs> at the Tower Theater. Yeah, and I and I have infamous, that was the infamous night where Tom Tom lost my dog. Poor Barney. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry about Barney Paul. Um, he did come back. I'm the one. I'm I'm the one who should apologize. I'm sorry. Loved Barney. Well, <laughs> uh, all right. Let's get this on record that John Sykes absolutely slayed "Stole the Night" for that. Oh yeah, audience. he did. Audience. Oh he my did. God, the vocals, the guitar, the vibe—it was all there. So, so, so I miss I miss the the true White Snake concert experience. Uh, but the, the, the that song in particular. And 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 John Sykes, what what a dude! Incredible work. Yeah, I'm sad I didn't get to see that show, and I know I did not see that show because um, I was kind of late onto the Blue Murder bandwagon. I think I don't know if I was into them by the time that show was around or not, but I know I I wasn't there. And just getting the chance to see John Sykes perform, you know, any of these songs would be phenomenal. So uh, I'm. Uh, it's very cool that you guys did get that experience. He really can sing too. It's not like he just sort of mm -hmm. like gets in front of the mic and just does what he can. I mean, like he, when he sings that song, he can, he can sing it. And the fact that he's singing it and playing it is pretty impressive. So, I mean, the first time I, I heard it, I was like, wow, he is actually a singer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Can we talk about David Coverdale's voice? Because apparently he was coming back and then he wasn't due to his voice. I mean, uh, Joe, you, you almost segued into the drama around this album. Yeah, yeah apparently, you know, and, and it's like, I didn't know any about this. Uh, apparently, you know, Sykes and Coverdale sort of got together and wrote some songs and that was great. And they laid down the tracks for it all. And then Coverdale apparently had some sort of an illness and couldn't sing. And there, there seems to be conflicting reports, at least in, in the little bit of research I did that, you know, maybe John Sykes was getting a little antsy and wanted someone else to record the vocals or, or accused David of dragging his feet. And David wasn't happy about being pushed to come back and this, that, and the other thing. Um, so I, 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 you know, according to what I've read, you know, this was sort of the basis for some of the friction that led David to say, John, get the fuck out of here. Um, but I, again, you know, all we knew is, and, and I seem to remember, I, I vaguely have recollections of these conversations. 
like you said, Paul, when we first saw the Still of the Night video, you're like, well, wait, that's Vivian Campbell. What the hell's Vivian Campbell doing here? Oh, this is great. And then I guess one of us bought the album and like, there's no Vivian Campbell anywhere on the record. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's like, well, wait a second, what's going on here? Then we, we ran right out to Clemens to get the Hit Parader magazine to see if we could find out any information. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Clemens. days before the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, heavens. Um, he, he, Coverdale is awesome. He's an awesome singer. Uh, he, he did a lot of great stuff with Purple. He, he, he holds up throughout his career every once in a while you you know we'd catch something a little weird but i mean he's incredible it's just it's scary some of the stuff that he hung his hat on because now he can't go out on the road unless he has a high f sharp which is terrifying (laughs) i think i remember these conversations you know bits and pieces of conversations we had 30 years ago at uh, you know Denny's or wherever we were, and we would talk about you know what sort of career um, you know even back a couple years after '87, talking about what sort of career that um, White Snake would have if if John Sykes would have you know stayed with uh, Dave Coverdale, and I think we would have had a completely different history for for white snake because i think i mean this album i mean mean, is a step above anything that they did previously and after that and it's really john sykes who is 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 all over this and i think that the two of them made some magic on this that i would have loved to have heard you know albums after this what they've done hopefully it would have matured and we could have you know, gotten into even better albums. But um, it is a shame that they, they didn't do anything after this because, uh, I mean, even a song like Crying in the Rain, I mean, some of the, I mean, there's just, there's bits and pieces that you're like, wow, this is really good. I would love to hear them take this to another, another level, another step. And, you know, for obvious, we, obviously we never did. And, you know the p- other people that he brought in just weren't quite the right equation for you know the magical album that that White Snake '87 is. But um, yeah, I mean John John Sykes is the man. I will say I do remember speaking of crying in the rain, taking it to the next level. I do remember when I had my interview at Millersville University Music Department to see if I could you know go to school there. I had been. I was asked to share one or two musical experiences that that changed my life. <laughs> and oh no! And <laughs> only a brain that could have been possessed by an eighteen-year-old. I brought up the White Snake concert, and I brought up the end of "Crying in the Rain," and I said, "It's just this. It's this big, heavy song. It's an E minor, and." I said, and at the end, the singer's holding out this high E over all of these like dual guitars running just a very simple, you know, harmonized minor run down. And I said, and and I said, and in the concert they get to the last note and and the guitar player slid up 
uh, and made it into uh, an, an E major chord. Played it, played a G sharp at that very end. And like again, it was one of those like moments where like you know I felt like the only person in the in the theater who you know realized what was going on and had exploded all over again. <laughs> and it was just like an amazing. And I remember telling uh, uh, the person who was interviewing me that you know it just it was one of those moments that triggered. Wow, there's so many possibilities with music that I never uh, never had thought of. And then there it is, like Vivian Campbell, like you know, playing, doing a Picardy third, and just making it. You know. <laughs> um, the second, the second uh, musical experience that I shared in that interview question was the first time I had heard uh, the second movement of Daniel Pinkham's Christmas Cantata. By the way, nice, mind blown. But Tom, if you ever want to think about crying in the rain and being taken to the next level, go listen to the Saints and Sinners version. Of crying in the rain. Okay, I think I heard that. Wait, yeah, because then because it definitely is next level. On on White Snake eighty seven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they definitely came a a long way. Yeah, Paul, it's funny you brought up that that trip we we took to the Poconos, listening to Slip of the Tongue. I I was listening. I was thinking about that today, and you know, you and I would always talk about that, that album. Or, or talk about uh, the the White Snake album. We we yeah. always would, right. It, it, it would always come yeah. up. You know, we're teenage yeah. boys, and and I remember we were just so excited to hear "Slip <laughs> of the Tongue." Steve Vai is now in White yeah. Snake. Are you kidding me? This is going to be <laughs> incredible. Like we were just like, oh, we're going to the Poconos. We're just going to rock out this a new White Snake album with Steve Vai. And you know we, we pop it in and we're we're sort of you know we're trying to like it and I sort of like came up with <laughs> we're this, trying to like it and it's kind of like you know living in Hollywood there's always these you always going out to dinner with people who are always talking about like you know the greatest things to eat and all that and then you, you order end up ordering like a kale salad right and then like what the hell kale salad really. So you're like you're you just we bite haven't, into we haven't a invoked kale, kale in the kale forever salad. in years. I know a big fan. You bite of into kale a salad. kale salad and you're just like you're telling the the people at the table. You're like, okay, this is good. Yeah, I'm I'm enjoying it. But meanwhile, you're like, oh, it's bitter and dry. And you're just like, oh my god, you're trying to get <laughs> it's into probably, it. Probably probably because it wasn't massaged, <laughs> which is a crime. That's right. <laughs> you got to massage your kale, man. Okay, uh, uh, all right. I'll, I'll massage my kale. <laughs> but. <laughs> But it was sort of like we were like really trying to like this, and but it was yeah. like we just couldn't sink our teeth into it. And I think we even listened to it twice, and we still couldn't. Yeah, uh, and and you know it was at a time when like Steve Vai was just like, I mean, he was so far ahead of, I mean, I mean to say he was so far ahead of his time, but but to be in that band at that time, I mean, it was impossible for him not to just completely you know change the entire sonic whatever of that of that of that band like he just the ambiance that he creates is unmistakably him and it just was odd um i don't know yeah. that i ever got over it really yeah yeah and it still had yeah, Adrian. What was the hit? What was the one hit that was on? Fool for on Your Loving or whatever. He That's still it. Kind of had yeah. like the feel of Slip of the Tongue, but yeah. now with like 
Steve I. Yeah. And so it was like you skipped the generation of the White Snake album, like the largeness of it. And now it's almost like, okay, we're trying to do a little blues again, but now with Steve I, it's like, wait a minute. Um, this wasn't yeah. like the direction I, I was hoping for, but. Oh, and and well, I mean, I mean, the weird thing is, we're talking about slip of the tongue, right? Yeah. All yeah. right. So, 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 full for your loving when it's a single, but it was written by Coverdale, Bernie Marsden, and Mick Moody, the two prior yeah. guitarists. It so, yeah, old, it was another old one. Yeah. yeah. And all the tracks otherwise are credited to Coverdale and Vanderberg, mm-hmm. Vandenberg. Um, so Vi didn't even write anything, but he just got his sound all over everything. Well, exactly. yeah, because um, Coverdale and, and Vandenberg had written the album, and then Adrian had whatever injury he had and couldn't actually record. And they mm. brought Steve in because at, at that point, or I should say by that point, Vivian had said, Fuck you guys, I'm out of here. Um, because he didn't see a future there, so they brought Steve in to record all the, the parts on the on the record, even though he didn't write any of them. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think I do remember Sailing Ships was a pretty cool song off of that slip of the tongue. But, yeah, there were a couple of decent songs on there. But yeah, it was it was it was a very strange set of circumstances that which really, I guess, you know, probably plummeted the band into crisis afterwards, which is probably. Well, it did. They, they didn't have an album out for another eight years after that. I mean, then I mean, yeah. the 90s were downhill for. You know the everybody yeah. most most yeah. hard rock in general so i mean um you know white snake was just one of the uh many many casualties of, <laughs> of the 90s but um they didn't put out anything after that for a while and um it's interesting you know steve Vai is such a force to be reckoned with i mean he's just such an insane guitar player it, i can imagine it would be hard to fill an existing you know, existing shoes an existing band you know even like david lee roth skyscraper album just just doesn't work you know there's just like i mean god what was that oh, song paradise oh god it was oh it was just horrible uh, almost oh. paradise yeah. yeah i mean it was just like oh no i mean and you're just you're like okay he's he has all this to work with he has all this talent, but he's just not given the right um, setting. And then again, with slip of the tongue, he's like in that exact space where it's just it's not right for him. It looks good on paper. He looks good. He has the moves. He has the flash. He has the eighties. He can do anything that anyone asks him to do. But he's just in the wrong band. Yeah, it's just it's just not time. a not a good fit for him. Right. Well, he tours, you know, as the artist with his own backing band now. So that says yeah. a lot. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a singular, singular artist. I mean, imagine, you know, it's almost like <laughs> imagine if like a pop band in the seventies like hired Steve Howe to come play for them uh, you know, for <laughs> their next album. I mean, it would just be disastrous. Good lord! Awesome. You know, yeah. Talk about he's, how um on. It, it doesn't even say this in the wikis, but some of the largeness of this album is with the guitars. And apparently Bob Rock was involved in getting the guitar sound for, for, for John in this album. And I think 
uh, when when you look at the largeness of this record, uh, Bob Rock should be should be given some sort of credit. Yeah, that he's not given. And I think uh, I think Bob Rock is credited with producing Blue Murder, though, right? Blue Murder, yeah, but um, I, yeah. I would have thought there would have been some sort of credit for him on this album because the guitars on this album this i don't know i mean obviously the 80s were you know famous for like large sounds but i mean did had we heard guitars that were this large before i mean like even like the early 80s hard rock stuff i mean the stuff was then even like randy rhodes i mean he the amazing stuff that randy rhodes did i mean the, the guitar sound itself was like really thin and you know even you know the rats and dockins and motley crews and all that i mean they they had very uh, thin sounds in comparison to this and so i mean this was like a another level as far as like largeness goes for for guitar so a shout out to bob rock on that cool yeah yeah there's an interesting article out there on uh, truth and shredding about creating the guitar sound for White Snake '87 with cool. John Sykes and uh, Bob Rock, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. We've talked, you know, obviously we've talked on about a lot of different records on this podcast. Um, you know, not many of them straight up heavy metal records, um, but we we do tend to touch on whether or not something is dated. I don't think anyone's going to argue that this sound is is not dated um it clearly is but it at the same time tom it is undeniably huge at the same time i mean it's yeah. it's just it's just fun and i like that about this record you know we i, I think there was in the last week there was an expression or several expressions of what i'll call prog fatigue I mean, a lot of what we do oftentimes requires a lot of engagement on the part of the listener. And, and that's just, that's part of, of the genre that we have decided to explore here on this podcast. And sometimes it's nice to just turn your brain off and, you know, rock out a bit. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. This album is, is great for the car when you got movement and you're just sort of and that adrenaline. It's like having a shot of yeah. A shot of something and uh, you just Well shoot, even even before this I was I was in the kitchen, you know, mixing up cocktails, just rocking my ass out to, to freaking white snake. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Even the ballads. Yeah, even even the ballads are, and and you know that's one of the. I'm glad you kind of brought that up, Ken. And I know we need to to kind of put a wrap on this. But like one of the things that you know sort of became a staple at at this time, certainly among heavy metal bands, was you had to have the power ballad, you know, "Home Sweet Home" and whatever the hell else. I think the ballads on this album, and I guess there's what there's two of them. To me, they play a little bit less hokey than maybe some other bands ballads do and you know I, that's neither here nor there it's just sort of my opinion and i think yeah um 
And, and, and I wonder if that's not in some ways related to Tom, you made the point of, of David Coverdale actually being a couple years older and maybe having a slightly different spin on some of this stuff. I don't know. Um, but, but even the, for, for, for my money, the ballads on this record just play a little bit better. I agree. I, I, I agree. And I, and I, I, I'm sure I've shared this story with you guys before, but going to the uh, Paul Reed Smith experience events, and uh, in Maryland at the Paul Reed Smith factory uh, several years ago, um, you know, Bernie Marsden is a uh, PRS artist, right? And, you know, he's been very active in, you know, the guitar world, right? You know, for, for a while. And he had a, a, a solo album out in the one year he was there and he got up and just did a small little set. He was jamming the whole, the whole weekend. They did a small little set on the main stage at the big concert and he told a story about uh a, some tom cruise movie that was coming out and they wanted to option um uh here i go again and um he told this whole story about you know how they wrote the song and he said and you know the song that we wrote is, isn't really the song that you guys all know and he played this terrific sort of one-man acoustic version of here i go again and uh it was fantastic and it, you know it struck me uh, it you know it, it 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 had a big impact on me. So you know I started playing that a similar version of that at my acoustic solo shows. And sometimes when you know F and Z, when Mike Fuda needs to take a pee, uh, <laughs> I play that song because it gives him about five minutes to go to the bathroom and and um and it is so funny because you know uh most of the time half of what you do in the acoustic setting at a bar is just goes you know, right past everyone because they're busy talking and doing whatever. But you hit the chorus of Here I Go Again and even not even singing it like the real thing, but singing it in sort of the so it like it's it's one of those things like in the middle of everyone's conversation, they just like turn over and look. Really? And they like <laughs> they and then go back to what what they were doing. And it's it's a it's a very it's a it's a very cool thing, and I think it goes to your point that as as if you call that a pop ballad, maybe or whatever, like it 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 had something special to it that I don't think the regular you know ballads had, and certainly it's love. I think it rises above um, the normal formulaic yeah you know pop ballad. All right, so the purpose of this was not to go on all night long and not to get too deep into it, but merely just to. Uh, you know, have a little fun talking about a record that we have, most of us have loved for a really long time. Yeah. And, and Ken, glad you, uh, glad you had a very, it sounds like a, a positive experience here in the last couple of weeks. Um, oh, so, yeah. so yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think, again, we, did, we don't need to belabor this point, but uh, if anyone has any sort of last thoughts on the self-titled oh. white snake, now is the time. I, I have one last thought. So, a, a quick perusal of YouTube and you will find probably a half dozen different videos, Tommy Aldrich and whatever age he is now, I think the dude's like 70 playing along to a backing track of, of crying in the rain. And, you know, as you mentioned the onset, right? It's, it's, it is a powerhouse drum track played by Ainsley Dunbar. Right, uh -huh. but Tommy Aldridge is literally making a, 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 a side hustle living <laughs> off of playing that song at clinics. 
Really? And every time I every time I watch the video, I think he's gonna die. I think it's <laughs> I think he's I think he's gonna just fall off because he's he's no spring chicken. And he pounds the shit out of those drums and he plays that song. It is so epic. Um it's definitely worth worth checking out him. It is I that, mean it's that's it's great. Fantastic. I, I had not gotten that far down the YouTube rabbit hole, so I'll have to kind of go back here <laughs> um, <laughs> and check that out. Yeah, it, it's interesting you, you brought that up, Paul, because <clears throat> when I listen to that song, I really envision Tommy Aldridge playing the track in the studio. I, I always knew it wasn't, but it really kind of sounds like his style. I, and yeah. it's just those those mega fills. There's just the largeness mm. of that, and it's like it was like I really think that Tommy Aldridge was the perfect fit for 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 that band. And um, yeah, I mean he he definitely nailed it. I just want to say, you know, when you're listening to this album, and you and you okay, you have a little break with is this love. And then you get the children of the night. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that song is just heavy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it just I mean, it just rocks. And then you're like, oh my God. All right. I just really needed the song right now. And then that takes you into the you know, the finale songs, which um, you know, but I, I think Children of the Night is just the cat's meow. If we're yeah, yeah, nice. yeah, agreed. Agreed. You know, maybe may, maybe I was willing to axe the last two just because Children of the Night left me very happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic. There you go. All right. Well, thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate this little uh, you know journey down the side street. Um, this was fun, and if you know we find similar inspiration, well, we might do something like this again. But I think uh, I think this album was certainly worth a little bit of of our time, and this was a. Uh, a great way to spend a too old-fashioned palaver. So thanks, gentlemen. Nice. Awesome. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is ProgPala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.